Cancel culture versus free speech and danger to our civil liberties. Amy Peekoff from Parlor joins us. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and this is Legal Talk Today. Welcome, listeners. Thank you for joining us. We've got a very important episode today, arguably the most important one for this show to date. But before we get into it, I want to thank our sponsor, NBI, the National Business Institute. Attorneys have trusted NBI with their CLE needs for over 35 years. Visit nbi-sems.com today and find out why. Don't forget to use our promo code LegalTalkNBI to get $100 off your next CLE course. All right. Thank you so much for joining us, Amy. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine, Lawrence. How about you? Doing okay over here. Well, uh, Amy, we've got uh, we got quite a show here. I want to talk about uh, cancel culture and free speech. And so we've got a big election cycle coming up here in the United States. A lot of really important issues and policy decisions to make. You know, how are we going to stop riots and violence in our cities? You know, how are we going to ensure that everyone is equally treated under the law? When are we going to fully reopen? You know, what is the acceptable amount of risk with coronavirus to allow us to start living our lives? And, you know, should we review the emergency powers that we leave with our uh, elected officials and should we be making adjustments to those? And so these are all huge policy matters to consider. And I think it's especially important right now to have an open public debate with the exchange of ideas. And I don't view this as a political parties issue. This is about America. This is about what it means to be an American. You know, we're the land of the self-governed. We have critical things to talk about. And I think free speech being our cornerstone is our guiding light through these contentious times that we find ourselves. So I know that was a bit of a huge windup there, Amy, but um, you're the chief policy officer for Parler. And of course, Parler is a social media platform. And uh, I want to invite you on today to discuss these ideas. But first, I want to talk a little bit about Parler. It's a relatively new social media platform for me. And I suspect there might be some listeners out there that haven't quite discovered it yet. So why don't we start with that? You know, tell us a little bit about Parler, what it is and why it was created. So Parler was founded in 2018 because our CEO, John Mates, realized that even though some of our competitors started out probably very good intentionally to create a public square for freedom of expression, over the years, they had taken more and more responsibility of, you know, upon themselves to moderate content, as they might call it. And we're seeing more and more people complaining about people, you know, having their content taken down, maybe even being banned from a platform due to the content of what they are posting on the platform, not because they were violating any crime, any copyright infringement or defamation or things like that, but simply because their content was deemed hateful. And, you know, Mates saw an opportunity here. Why don't we actually then create a platform that truly is an open public square. At the same time, he was also concerned about privacy. And there's been a lot of discussion and, of course, some allegations probably with substance about competing social platforms either sharing data in an unauthorized way, data mining in ways that people are finding troublesome. And, of course, there was the Snowden revelations in 2013, which raised awareness of all this. So, to create a platform that is not only free speech minded, but also privacy minded, that does not data mine, that retains the minimal amount of data to exist as a business, that was also attractive to him. 
You know, I noticed from some of the articles that I read that there was a pretty big migration of conservative minded uh, folks out there that moved from Twitter to your platform. But I just wanted to you know, ask this because this was in the interview. And uh, but that's not really it's not really intended as a conservative platform. It's con- it's for everybody. Is that correct? Yes, it's definitely for everyone. And so, yes, it happens that it was the conservatives who were feeling the brunt of the you know, what you might call censorship policies of our competitors. And so they were the the first ones to say, yes, I'm very comfortable with Twitter. I'm very comfortable with Facebook in terms of the user interface. And you know how people between Microsoft and Mac or whatever, they get very accustomed to a certain style of interacting on the computer. You know, to make a leap to a new user interface is, is a huge step for some people. And yet it was the conservatives who felt that their ideas were being excluded and discriminated against on those platforms first. And so, of course, they would be the first to come over. And, of course, we would be the first to welcome them. But we welcome everyone. Okay, well, that's a nice lead in for uh, the next part of this discussion. I want to get into our questions about cancel culture. And so I think really valuable to have somebody that works in the social media space. And so, you know, what's your take on cancel culture? So part A, is it real? And then I guess part B, how do you personally define it? Well, I've definitely seen a lot of evidence that it's real out there. What you see out there is you see people trying to deprive others of a voice, of a platform, silence them because they disagree with them. And instead of silencing them by making a fabulous argument that they can't answer and so therefore they're silent, right? That would be the ideal that you use an argument against them. Instead, they're intimidating. Sometimes they're actually threatening violence per se, but they are doing things like going to the employer of that person and trying to get that person fired. They don't have arguments to answer the positions with which they disagree. Instead, they are using intimidation, humiliation, threats of various kinds, and violent language, and and sometimes even threatening violence, physical violence itself. We know working in media, I can't really afford to ignore one source or another. So I turn to a variety of sources when I research a story. You know, some of them have been argued as left of center. Some of them have been argued as right of center. But for me, it's information and I'm trying to solve a puzzle to to put together my questions. But, you know, one thing I would add to some of that cancel culture definition there, you know, practices like doxing, you know, we've seen our political leaders be harassed at their homes and we've seen uh, news anchors be harassed at their homes because that information was put up online. I think we even saw uh, pseudo recently the Covington Catholic school kids after a trip to D.C. received bomb threats at their at their school, at their home. I've even read about some organizations putting together a team of people to call sponsors for shows that they disagree with the content of. And they go after the sponsors and try to scare the sponsors off, effectively right. deplatforming a show. I've, I've heard about this, you know, at the individual level at work, you know, people hearing some water cooler conversation about politics, didn't like it, report to H.R., you know, and getting their coworker in trouble. Probably the most visible and for me, probably the most hurtful. And I've talked about this on the air, you know, college and law school were, were times of great personal exchange for me. And I learned a lot from my friends who I politically disagreed with. But the heckler's veto, you know, you see this when a speaker comes and people get out there and protest and riot in a way that, uh, you know, they damage buildings and they burn things and they scare the administrators into disinviting that particular speaker because they can't 
guarantee the safety. But I want to come back to the social media, sort of the, the, the digital part of this, which I think we all need to be very aware of in the next election cycle as we exchange ideas and air out concepts that we want to discuss. And so you all released a press release, and uh, and this was back in July, and your CEO, John Mates, um, he said that Parler's against techno-fascism. So I want to dig into that a little bit. You know, what is techno-fascism and how do social media platforms and search engines engage in that type of uh, behavior, you know, effectively canceling culture here? Technofascism is one term that we use to refer to platforms that seem to take it upon themselves to say what is acceptable in terms of speech and the content of speech to, you know, how a they think that they can be at the you know on the one hand at just a platform and say that they're for a free and open public square and on the other hand they have all sorts of rules that have nothing to do with whether a particular speech act is a crime that they would use as a reason to perhaps take down that content. Sometimes they will throttle using various algorithms and they will not present material chronologically in a user feed. They'll do it according to their own editorial judgment. That sort of behavior we would refer to as techno-fascism. We also do talk about this issue of techno-cronyism. And sometimes you see someone, for instance, like Mark Zuckerberg, when he would go before Congress and say, oh, well, you know, basically inviting regulations around hate speech. And we see that some of the proposals for modifying Section 230 would have to do with instituting certain sorts of criteria for taking down certain types of speech within a certain time frame, et cetera. And those sorts of restrictions would only entrench the current market leaders, such as Twitter and Facebook, who, you know, they employ an army of people to go through and moderate speech according to their own individual editorial bias. Someone who is trying to come in and decides, well, I want to create a truly free speech platform, you know, an open public square. That's what we want to do at Parler. We're at a tremendous disadvantage if we have to run very lean as we are growing, if we are faced with a mandate that we moderate speech in the way that these others do, not to mention that we think it's a bad idea, uh, because once you go beyond anything that is a clear crime, if you go beyond that principle of taking down speech only when something is a crime or a tort, then you're going to be in this gray area of moderating according to your own individual preferences. And I think what we've seen with those other platforms is that controls breed further controls. The more that you go ahead and take something down as hateful, there's going to be some pressure group that's going to say, well, what about that other thing that's hateful too? Why don't you take that down? And then suddenly you've abandoned the idea of a free and open public square altogether. Well, Amy, you know, our, our audience is primarily the legal professionals, but, you know, I think maybe uh, it could help to drive the point home, you know, maybe some of the specifics. So you talked about the practice of throttling, and I read about something called backlisted. So these are, you know, different methods by which, you know, an algorithm can be mixed up. But, you know, in terms of social media, you know, and, and Google, like what are some specific examples of how they may gloss over certain content or how do they silence certain content? I think that that just a specific example helped drive this point home. Well, so one of the things that we've seen lately is that they've taken it upon themselves to fact check. So they have this army of and you're talking fact about Twitter. checkers. 
Yes, yes. And, and, you know, Facebook, I think, is starting to do some of this as well. But it's more well known on Twitter, especially when they've flagged the president's tweets, for example, you know, as, as coming up as some sort of a problem with their fact checkers. Why are they taking this upon themselves? Why are they not leaving this to the judgment of the individual users, trusting an individual to use his or her own judgment? Now, I'm not saying that if people complain that they say, well, this is actually false and it is a clear case of defamation or something where it's just obviously false, then that wouldn't be warranted to take it down because you do not want to assist anybody in the commission of a tort, right? But for example, the there's the news today that we all have on our minds as we're recording this, which is that Twitter has taken down a tweet of the president in which there's a video of a doctor talking about her experience treating patients with hydroxychloroquine. There is, of course, some disagreement about the effectiveness of hydroxychloroquine, but why is it that Twitter is taking it upon themselves to deem this outright misinformation and to actually take the content down off of their platform. I don't know if the, if Jack from Twitter has phrased it this way, but in at least one context, Mark Zuckerberg has talked about feeling responsible for the content on his platform, taking responsibility. And to the extent that they take these actions consistent with being responsible for the content, why are they not deemed to be publishers who should also be legally liable for that content? Well, you're kind of, uh, you're breaching into uh, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. And so I definitely want to ask about that. And so we had a, a, an earlier uh, show talking about that. Uh, this is one of, uh, I guess, one of many of President Trump's uh, debacles <laughs> with Twitter. But I invited one of our hosts on, Ken White, who's the host of Make No Law. He does criminal defense in Los Angeles, uh, founder of the Popat blog. But uh, I call him, just on a personal level, the aficionado of the First Amendment on our network. But uh, I was asking him about that question, you know, that, that sort of of a platform provider versus content creator and that that good Samaritan blocking portion of Section 230. But I'd really love to hear from you, Amy, from the social media company perspective. What is the value of Section 230? I mean, what does that allow you to do and what type of protection does it give uh, platform providers like yourself? So ideally, what 230 does is codify what those of us who are sort of the law geeks you know, again, Parler is not in the business of, of making law, but me personally, having gone to law school and being a fan of the common law, I could have envisioned a rational common law judge being presented for the first time with a case involving some new entity called a platform in which individuals are allowed to publish their own content on the platform, and the platform itself doesn't exercise any editorial control or anything like that. They just allow it. And that there are certain basic bare rules at the bottom, you know, where you say, okay, well, we're not going to allow you to commit acts of terrorism or to make outright physical threats or to commit coffee, copyright infringement or, you know, any other tort like defamation, et cetera, on our platform. We're not going to enable that. But other than that, we are not exercising any editorial control. So that would be an entity called the platform. And you would allow the platform, I think, rationally, reasonably, if you're a common law judge, to be free of liability for the content of what 
individual posters put on your platform, in part because if you didn't allow that, nothing like a platform could exist. And you would think as a public policy matter that it is good for an easy to interact with platform to exist like this, you know, a user interface that's pleasing and easy to use so that individuals could speak and could share ideas and could connect with each other about the important issues of the day. So what 230, I think, ideally would do is enable that sort of entity to exist with clear rules and you know it would everybody would be on notice that if you tried to sue such an entity for the content that an individual user posted on the platform the person would know that their lawsuit would have no chance it would be frivolous that's what ideally 230 would be but from what i have seen you know there's a bit of disagreement about what 230 actually does afford people like Facebook and and Twitter, if they want to go beyond the bare minimum and they want to moderate content according to their own editorial preferences, someone like a Eugene Volokh, I've read, says that 230 provides them a huge latitude of discretion to go ahead and do just that and would still protect them according to the current language in Section 230. I do not think that is ideal because I do think what we're seeing now is that they are acting in, you know, without getting into the individual posts and editing individual posts, when they're exercising their up and down veto, they're doing it in such a way as to exercise editorial discretion that's more like a newspaper and less like the ideal free and open square platform that we're trying to be. All right. So, Amy, I want to quickly follow up on the point that you're making right there, that protection that Section 230 gives platform providers. And so I read 230 uh, before the interview, and there's a section in there. It's a finding section. It's 230A3. And within it, it kind of talks about, at least in my opinion, uh, some of the purpose of uh, an intent behind Section 230. And there's this notion of the internet as a forum for the true diversity of political discourse. So, If a Twitter or another social media company censors, fact checks, or treats unfairly one political side versus another, in your opinion, are they in violation of the spirit of Section 230? I would say definitely, for sure. Because, I mean, what is, again, the purpose for this? The purpose for this is to enable such an entity as a platform to exist, to provide a free and open public square for people to have these substantive discussions. While it's true that the First Amendment is not an obligation on a private entity, nonetheless, if the purpose of 230 insofar as that it provides the security of bright lines so that the platforms don't always have to worry about you know, each separate judge making a judgment as to whether they're behaving like a platform or not, they have some bright lines that they can follow. Part of the trade-off for the luxury of that is for them to actually behave in the spirit in which it was written, which was to enable a free and open square for discussion to exist. If they're violating the spirit of Section 230, in your mind, do they potentially lose that liability shield for policing their platform in that manner? You know, it, it really does depend. And, you know, again, at, especially, you know, speaking for Parler, I couldn't really make a recommendation as to what specifically should happen according to the law with these other platforms. But what I do know is that there are a number of proposals out there to amend it in such a way that it seems to entrench 
the propriety of what they're doing as platform and in fact erect certain requirements for moderation that only those larger entrenched market players could meet right now. And so that is concerning to me. I would rather make it so that any modification to 230 makes it easier for new entrants, of course, like Parler to come in, not simply because I work for them, but only because I think it is right for a free and open public square to exist somewhere on the internet so that people can have these discussions, particularly in an election year. All right. And to close this out, I wanted to uh, leave uh, the audience with this. Just if you could leave us some words about the value of free speech, the exchange of ideas and the importance of that to our republic, what would they be? Well, I think what is important for us as a republic will translate to what is important to each of us as individual American citizens. And what does the right to freedom of expression allow you? It allows you also to have the freedom to think, right? Because if you are not allowed to express your thoughts at all, to try them out with other people and have free and open discussions, you are not allowed to develop your ideas. You're not allowed to make better arguments for your position or discover that you were wrong. You will be scared if you are living in a cancel culture where all of these horribles might befall you to even express your view out there at all. And so it's going to stifle thought to the extent you can't speak freely, you cannot think freely. To the extent that you can't think freely, you can't figure out what is good for your life and what is bad for your life. I think the goal of any person in any field is to figure out how you can make the world a a bit of a better place, doing something that you love. And what we're passionate about at Parler is creating a free speech, privacy conscious platform for people to engage in this free and open discussion and not worry about horrible consequences of doxing and all the intimidation and everything that goes on with the other platforms so they can develop these ideas, figure out what is best for them, and then in turn, that's going to be what's best for the country. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Amy. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please rate us in your favorite podcasting app. Also, we'll cite and make available our sources for this episode on our website, LegalTalkNetwork.com. And one more time, thank you to our sponsor, NBI, the National Business Institute. You can find them at NBI-SEMS.com. Don't forget the promo code LegalTalkNBI to receive $100 off your next CLE. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Galetti. Have a great day, everybody. 